So welcome everyone to our morning session. Um, hope you had a good breakfast. Um, we wanted to just um, rearrange our space because we noticed there's a lot of empty mats. <laughs> so if it's okay... Uh, I know, I know there's still two folks that were new that, that arrived this morning, so maybe we can leave two spots, and then maybe these empty mats we can put back in the closet, and then we can kind of come, come into maybe like a big circle. Yeah, yeah? that sounds good. So those at the chairs can bring their chairs, you know, more to, the, to fill in, so we can all be in one circle. You can, or it could be a you, you know. So yeah. maybe those here can still be facing the front, but um, yeah. And if there are folks that want to fill in in the middle, in the yeah. in the middle of the circle, yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah, so we can just get just get closer, just closer. Yeah, really. <clears throat> be more intimate. You're good. Yeah. for the two women who <clears throat> came in last night. Making sure we have space for them. Okay. Good. This is, this is much better, huh? Mm-hmm. We, can, we can grow if... Oh, here. <coughs> we're, we're growing now, so we may need to just make a little more space. Let's see okay. where folks want to sit. start us out with a song and um, this is a song that I learned this summer and the words are to everyone everywhere no one no one is excluded from my heart that's the first part so we'll learn that there's a second part 
And maybe we'll just wait to, uh, to have everyone get their seats. So welcome, you're welcome to have a mat or a chair. So we can we can either get bigger or you can come into the center. Yeah. Great. So this is a song by Pablo Das, um, and I I learned it from uh, folks who share mindfulness with teenagers, which I have also led retreats for teens with IBME. So I'll sing a little bit, and then you can repeat. To everyone, everywhere. To everyone, everywhere. No one, no one is excluded from my heart. No one, no one is excluded. From my heart. Try that all together and we'll sing it twice. To everyone, everywhere. No one, no one is excluded. From my heart. To everyone, everywhere. No one, no excluded from my heart. Next part is, I wish you well, my beloved. I wish you well, dear sweet soul. I wish you well, my beloved. May you live at ease. So that's the whole song. I wish you well, my beloved. We try that together. I wish you well, my beloved. I wish you well, dear sweet soul. I wish you well, dear sweet soul. I wish you well, my beloved. I wish you well, my beloved. May you live at ease. from I wish you well until the end. I wish you well, my beloved. I wish you well, dear sweet soul. I wish you well, my 
whole thing all together. To everyone, everywhere, no one, no one is excluded from my heart. To everyone, everywhere, no one, no one is excluded from my heart. I wish you well, my beloved. I wish you well, dear sweet soul. I wish you well, my beloved. to hear everyone's voices. Um, so um, this part of our morning, just for this half hour before Kanda gives the talk, the teaching, is a continuation of our meditation practice this morning before breakfast. And um, we'll either be doing a reading or prostrations, um, a kind of um, sacred ritual practice of acknowledging uh, what flows into us from our ancestors, from uh, all of the beings who make up who we are, and honoring how we flow into all the life that comes after us, whether it's our biological descendants or those we mentor or those we support in our um, activism work, or just future generations. So there's this <clears throat> this practice, as I was taught in the Plum Village tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh, of um, connecting to this larger stream of which we're just one one present expression of, but it existed before us, it will exist after us. And when we touch the earth, when we prostrate our bodies on the earth, we have a chance to feel that stream flowing through us, that we're not separate, we're not cut off. Um, We don't exist on our own. Um, We have this support of our ancestors, of our teachers, our spiritual lineage, our land ancestors. All of that is flowing into us. And when we get our bodies close to the earth, which is a practice in many different traditions, not just Buddhism, we have a chance to touch that support. And not only do we receive, but we also can then extend our, our care, our um, wisdom, our support to those who are coming after us. And this isn't just the humans, uh, two-leggeds, but it's the four-leggeds. It's the more than human. It's the earth herself that we are also Inter, interwoven with and so we're receiving energy from all species all beings and offering ourselves to all species all beings so 
Um, so today I wanted to offer us a um, prostration practice. And these are new, uh, there's, so this is <clears throat> a, a very uh, beloved uh, practice in the Plum Village tradition and in many other traditions it's done in different ways. Sometimes it's a silent touching the earth with our whole body on the earth either. We lay our body on the earth in the Tibetan style or we take the child's pose and we lay our forehead on the ground. It's this sense of coming close to something we trust and that we have nothing to hide. We turn our palms up to say, I'm in a receptive surrender. I'm receiving. I'm not holding on to something or having to prove or I can just let my whole body rest on the earth and be received for who I am, for what I am. <clears throat> so there are very, uh, lots of different versions of this practice where different things are contemplated in this position of touching the earth. There's a whole book on conversations with Mother Earth written by, by Thich Nhat Hanh with many different topics of conversations that you could have with the earth in this position of prostration. Um, but these are a new version, uh, some new practices um, that are for um, connecting as activists who care about social justice, climate justice, racial justice, um, earth justice. These are specific uh, contemplations for activists doing, doing this work. So. Um, <clears throat> so what I'll do is I'll, um, I'll read uh, an opening line and then you can either make your prostration in whatever way you wish or, or you could stay seated and you could touch the earth or you could simply sit as you normally would and just contemplate what I will read the longer contemplation and um, in case you do want to prostrate, I'll just demonstrate what that looks like. Um, let's see. So you can do it in the direction of the altar, but you're free to also, if you're inspired by the outdoors, you can turn and offer your prostration to the tree, to the sky. It doesn't have to be in any particular direction. <clears throat> but if you um, wish, you can join your palms. This is really uh, a gesture of bringing our mind and bodies together as one and offering that full presence to whatever, whomever we are bowing to. And um, as we said yesterday, the um, we're not separate from whatever we bow to, right? There's the awakened nature outside of us, and that awakened nature is inside of us. So we're not worshiping something outside of ourselves when we bow. We're acknowledging the nature of all life, of all beings, to, um, to be awakened. So we join our palms as a way to collect ourselves, and then... If you like, 
this is one way, this is how I do it. Uh, we bring our palms to our forehead, to our heart, to b- connect head and heart. And then we lower ourselves onto the ground. Um, and then we can lower our head and turn our palms up as we listen to the contemplation. I have a bunch of layers on, so I'm not very comfortable squeezing myself like this, so I have to make some adjustments. And so we can put our heads on a pillow, on a cushion, on a mat, or we can simply be in a kneeling position. There's The form isn't so important, but I'm offering you what some possibilities, but you may find something that works better for you. Just touching the earth, because this this contemplation is addressed to the earth. So we are in conversation with the earth. So if you want, you can touch, you can rest your head, and then it's a paragraph that I'll read, so a minute or so. So you want to be comfortable, but you're not going to be down there forever. And then I'll invite the bell, and then you can stand up And then we'll offer a prostration to close that piece of the conversation. And then I'll read two or three of these contemplations. So the other other way uh, is the Tibetan way where you lay your whole body on the ground. I'll just show that. So again, you can breathe in, joining the head and heart, and then breathe out, and then come to... Oops. <laughs> you can do that. So this is really kind of a it's really a humble practice <laughs> connection. Or you can do this if that's more comfortable. Or you can put your head to one side. So <clears throat> find what works for you. And again you can choose whatever direction you want to be in. You can put a yoga mat on the floor. So we'll give you all a, a moment to set up your, your place, wherever you'd like to be, to do this practice on whatever items of practice you wish to use.
Mother Earth, I open myself to your joy and your pain. Recognizing that we inter-are, I see that my views and actions affect your well-being and suffering and the well-being of myself and all other beings. So here you can prostrate if you wish or remain seated. Breathing with mindfulness, I am in touch with the insight that I am not separate from you, Mother Earth, or from all beings. Your well-being and mine are connected. When I cling to and act on views based in ignorance, craving, fear, and aversion, I contribute to corporate and governmental policies and systems that have harmed others, degraded the environment, and brought our climate into crisis. With compassion, I bear witness to the sacrifice zones, melting permafrost, rising sea levels, extreme temperatures and wildfires, as well as to the steep decline and extinction of species. I recognize that these events arise from generations of neglect and violence that stem from wrong views about our collective relationship with you, Mother Earth. Knowing that suffering and happiness inter-are, I draw strength from your great equanimity. As I see and meet these challenges, I aspire to train myself not to fall into despair escapism, or paralysis, but instead to cultivate loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity toward my body, feelings, and others. Through the concrete practice of nonviolence, I am determined to find ways to change the situation, both in my own life and in society. Touching the earth, I am aware that I am part of a larger planetary body and I share limited resources with countless others. And I share limited resources with countless others. I see clearly that when I live more simply and share with others, I already have enough conditions for happiness and can better support equitable living conditions for everyone. So here you can stand up. <clears throat> Mother Earth, I see that my thoughts influence my actions and have real effects on the world. I aspire to give rise to loving thoughts toward myself and all beings.
Mother Earth, I witness your capacity, your great capacity, to hold and embrace all beings as your children. When I can connect with this same quality of inclusiveness in me, I am able to embrace the current climate emergency, the many crises of war, of racial injustice, of homophobia, of um, the refugee crisis, without falling into judgment, anger, grief, or despair. As I reflect on those doing harm and worsening the situation, I practice sending them loving thoughts and recognize they are not my enemy. The roots of harmful actions are wrong perceptions and misunderstanding. Letting go of my tendency to think of others as separate from me, I feel compassion arise toward all of us for our collective situation. Looking deeply, I am aware that my lifestyle and my community's lifestyle also contribute to ecological suffering and many other kinds of suffering. I am determined to develop and maintain bodhicitta, the mind of love, to give me strength to embrace and transform my habitual ways of thinking and acting and to support others on the path of awakening and healing. I know that cultivating inclusiveness and bodhicitta, the mind of love, will help me transform challenging situations and act to bring about a positive, regenerative future for all of us. Please stand. So we'll just take a few breaths, just noticing what's alive in our hearts, in our minds, in our bodies. The sound of the bell will close our practice. Thank you. You can find your seat. Thank you, Kyra Jewel. That was beautiful.
all the all the words that I took in, everything, it's so <clears throat> ties into what we want to talk about this morning. But before I begin my talk, we have two new members of the family that has joined us this morning, and we welcome you, we welcome you, we welcome you. We're so happy you're here. And what we did last night is we had a beautiful circle, and everybody said their names and repeated their names, and we did that about three or four times, and we really got to know each other's names, and so it was quite lovely, and so we, we invite you, if you would, stand up and give us your name, and we will repeat your name, so we make sure that we, we, we have it. So I welcome you, invite you to, to introduce yourselves to, to, the, to the family here. Danae. 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 Welcome. Welcome. Okay. Mm-hmm. Danae. 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 And, and your pronouns? She, they pronouns. She, they. Okay. Thank you, Danae. Thank you, Danae. Liv. And so additionally, one of the things that we did last night is we created this altar. And are there more pieces of paper? Um, What we did is we took a a, a piece of paper and wrote on it on two sides. One side, we were thinking about who are we sitting here for? I mean, we're all here at this retreat of sacred justice activists, everyone in this room. And who or what situation or what group of people or, or, or beings that might be breaking our heart that we're sitting here for. Like, and we wrote it down on a piece of paper. And then on the other side, we put, and who in my life, what beings in my life are supporting me to be here? Who's got my back? And so on one side was, who are you sitting for? Who's in your heart? And on the other side, who's got your back? And, and you're in their heart. And it could be a human being. It could be a four-legged being. It could be someone that's passed on. Or So I'll take a moment and... And I offer, if any one of us that are here that's already added to the altar, if there's more that comes up for you, we have a second table. Feel free. We should keep that out there to add to the altar. Um, As I'm sure we are filled with a lot of, not just one, not just one issue or a group of people that 
has our heart here. So please, let's just, we can fill up the altar with as many as feels appropriate for you as we bring them into, into this space and into our circle, in our circle of care. So as you complete, we're going to um, sing a chant that our dear Karajula is going to lead as you come up and put it on the altar. And you can put it on the second table as well, if you like. Sabe sata suki hon tu May all living beings be happy is really not this deep. Um, I got a cold about five weeks ago now, and I lost my voice, and then it came back, but it came back like this, and I, I'm wondering if this is it. Like, is this my new voice? I, I thought it would change by now, but it hasn't. So anyway, I'm, I'm listening to myself differently. So we're going to be spending this next hour um, and the hour, this hour and the next, this morning and tomorrow morning, um, just speaking about what's on our hearts that we feel Kyra Joel and I can kind of massage the subject that we're here talking about, the sacred justice for our world, embodying compassion and equanimity sacred justice for our world and embodying compassion and equanimity. And when I think about the title of that, it, there's a link, it implies a link between experiencing outer justice and our inner capacity to develop a tender qualities of the heart. That there's a link between the two, that outer justice and our inner capacity to embody qualities of the heart that are tender. And so in these few days, we're going to explore this theme around who do we need to be? 
what qualities do we need to develop to do this work in a way that is actually effective internally and externally. And, um, you know, I don't know if you all are familiar with um, Krista Tippett on being, any of you know who, who Krista is. I happen to sit on her board of directors and she's just an amazing being. And she asks these three questions all the time that I love these. And they're very simple. What does it mean to be human? How do we want to live? And who will we be to each other? And so those are just the real core existential questions about being human for us here. And so, as we said last night, um, when Kyra Joel and I created the concept and the theme for this retreat, we had no idea what would be happening in the world at that time. Like I said, it was at least over a year and a half ago or so. Um, but there was always something, right? There's always something. But we had no idea that there would be such the development of so many wars that are upon our planet now. Not only the Ukrainian and Russian war, um, there's wars in Sudan and Ethiopia, there's wars in many other places that we don't hear so much about that people are, are suffering from. And obviously the Israeli-Palestinian war is heavy in the news and on our hearts. Um, and, but we never envisioned that we would be, that we would be teaching this retreat during such a, such a crisis, such a humanitarian crisis on the planet. Some of us are here um, in reading your beautiful applications, you know, climate is what's breaking your heart, how we're living on the planet and how we are. And I love what you said and, and, and what you just read, Kyra Jewell, that none of us are exempt. I live in a way that impacts the planet too. It's not like it's the other person. It's me as well. And I love that part that just takes responsibility in knowing that we want to do better. I happened to have in my, in my dyad last night, Paul and I, and he is, I know that yours is around the health disparities where your heart breaks and what brings you here. Um, a lot of us around the refugee, you mentioned the refugee, there are more refugees on the planet right now than ever before. People who are displaced, 108.4 million worldwide. Um, and that does not include what's happening right now, who are being displaced. And of course we have our, you know, the madness of our upcoming 2024 election. Um, and there's just so much that is happening that, but this is what it is to be human. This is what it's been to be human. We make war and we also make poetry. Right? We, we have these crazy ideas around white supremacy. And at the same time, we make love. And we have beautiful stories written by beautiful authors, Toni Morrison, um, James Baldwin. And yet, we also do mass murders. And 
slaughtering children in their schools, streets, supermarkets, places of worship. All of that is in us. All of that is in us. The beauty of dance, the beauty of art. My partner collects art and has so much beautiful Picassos even, and I'm finally understanding Picasso. There's just so much beauty and so much pain, and we are all of that, the complexity of being human. The good news is that everyone in this circle has not turned your back on the heart spaces. You haven't turned your back. You're facing it. All the joys and the sorrows of our planet, of our existence, of our human existence, the 10,000 joys, the 10,000 sorrows, you haven't turned your back. So we need you. <laughs> we need you to be well. We need you to take be really fortified and have the tools that you need to do the work to bring your passion to the planet and to each other. Activism, it actually lies at the heart of our humanity. It lies at the heart. Our work and our dedication for a better future is actually the essence of our humanity. That drive for a better future. That's who we really are. And many of you have this deep sensitivity to injustice. And that's not necessarily true from a lot of people. But you here, you have, you are, have this sensitivity to injustice. You actually love those people and, and beings that you don't even know. And that you'll never know, right? You have, you're working for a future that you'll never even see. And planting seeds that will grow, that of, of, of which fruit you will never eat. That is the heart of an activist. That's the heart of someone who cares beyond themselves. This is what compassion and loving kindness looks like. So I just honor and thank you for, for your work and for being here and doing what you do, however you do it. And it leads to burnout, <laughs> right? So we mentioned last night that as we were reading the applications, just one after the other after the other, mentioned burnout, burnout, burnout. This is why I'm here. That was a part of, of your applications, burnout. And does it ring a bell to you? You remember saying that? Burnout. It was a common theme. And so we know that activism is very exhilarating because of the the beautiful work that we are doing on the planet, but it's also draining and difficult. It's difficult to maintain, it's to sustain. So there have actually, you know, active, specifically activist burnout is a real thing. It's been studied. Specifically, it's been studied. And it is a, it is a real thing. And I have a little bit of, of um, information that came from that study and it said that there are th main, three main symptoms that you might be 
experiencing, and one is a deterioration of your physical health. Like literally this physical body starts to unravel from the pressure, from, from all that you're doing, from overworking, from all of the internal emotional spaces that you, that you touch, and how the physical body and starts to deteriorate from it. And then there's the deterioration of the psychological and emotional health, right? Our emotional health that is just filled with so much, so much, so many kinds of spaces that we touch in our, from, from anger and anxiety and cynicism, sadness, pessimism, um, the, the chronic illness that, that I mentioned, difficulty sleeping, there's so many, this disappointment, the, this emotional numbness at times. And so these are the, these are the things that, that happen there. And then there's this, often, this sense of just hopelessness, that the hill is too big to climb. And there's this sense of hopelessness, that am I actually making a difference, doubting whether we're really making a difference beginning to feel jaded and cynical and just complete emotional exhaustion. That is what burnout looks like in this work that we're doing. And the truth is that burnout is no small thing because it is the primary cause that eventually causes activists to disengage. Because you can only take so much. It is the primary cause that we disengage. And we need, we need, we need each other. So it is a real barrier to the sustainability of social justice movements and earth justice movements. It is the biggest barrier. So how do we keep that from happening? I love this piece that I have by um, the Indian scholar and environmental activist who's sovereignty advocate feminist, Vandana Shiva. You all may know who Vandana Shiva is. and Her work is just... So good, so um, dedicated. And she said this, she was asked by a interviewer, like, how do you do it? How do you keep it up? She's been at it for many, many, for decades. And, um, and she still is. <clears throat> and this was her answer. Well, it's always a mystery because you don't know why you get depleted or recharged. But this much I know, I do not allow myself to be overcome by hopelessness, no matter how tough the situation. I believe that if you just do your little bit without thinking of the bigness of what you stand against, if you turn to the enlargement of your own capacities, just that itself creates new potential. And I've learned from the Bhagavad Gita and other teachings of our culture to detach myself from the results of what I do because those are not in my hands. 
The context is not in your control. But your commitment is yours to make. And you can make the deepest commitment with a total detachment about where it will take you. You want it to lead to a better world. And you shape your actions and take full responsibility for them. But then you have detachment. And that combination of deep passion and deep detachment allows me to take on the next challenge. Because I don't cripple myself. I don't tie myself in knots. I function like a free being. I think getting that freedom is a social duty because I think we owe it to each other not to burden each other with prescription and demands. I think what we owe each other is a celebration of life and to replace fear and hopelessness with fearlessness and joy. That is the prescription. To be committed, to do, be your, your responsible self and detach oneself from the outcome. That is a tall drink of water. Because we want so fiercely to see the change and to have a change in my lifetime. How does it feel to think about letting that go and it not impeding the work and it still being the work that we do? So self-care is required. It is a requirement. And as activists, there's so much resistance to self-care. It feels self-indulgent. It uh, often feels that way. It often feels like activists struggle to create a time and space to reflect in an ongoing way with the practice. It's, if this self-reflection appears to be too inward when there's so much to do out there, how can we take the time? And I may lose my momentum. Um, and, you know, the odds are stacked against us. We've got so much to do. I can't lose the momentum by taking time to go inward. This work is so unending and so urgent. So sometimes it's thought of as a self-reflection, as a waste of time when the world is on fire. There's feelings of guilt often, you know, taking the time for oneself. And, um, or we, we don't think that we need to change, but everyone else out there needs to change. That's what needs to change, right? And even when it's handed to you on a golden platter, it's hard to accept it and take it in. And I have a situation that I want to tell you about, a story about when I first got involved in this whole community of mindfulness community, and it was in, I think it was 94, 1994, and I suddenly at my job got a call from Jack Cornfield out of the blue. And Jack got my number, he knew I was a, at the time I was a yoga teacher, and he was leading a retreat at Vallecitos in, in, in um, New Mexico at a retreat center 
for activists of color. Everything was paid for. They flew them in. They found, you know, they selected this group of amazing activists all over the country, flew them in, brought them to Vallecitos. Everything was free. And it was a silent meditation retreat for them to go in and to replenish. That didn't happen. <laughs> I don't think anybody saw the word silent. <laughs> or if they did, they thought maybe I have to be silent for a minute or while I'm sleeping. <laughs> but these activists saw each other and they couldn't help but just come together and talk, 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 talk. And they had no idea how to stop their minds. They had no, and we were trying to hold this container and this container was out of control. It was completely out of control. And it was like every day, every day, we kept talking about what silence and, you know, I'd walk and then late at night, they'd be huddled in the kitchen somewhere. And, you know, all, it, was, it was unbelievable that there was just no stopping it. And finally, after time, by the end of the retreat, I think it got a little bit silent. And they thought, ah, oh, this is what you were trying to give us. This is what it was. And the last two days, this was about a seven-day retreat. By the last day and a half, there was a silence started to take place, and they understood and got a sense of, wow, I wish I could have done this longer. I wish I could have done this longer and fed myself. But when I look back at that retreat, and I have friends that I developed from that retreat that are lifelong friends, but when I look back at it, one of the mistakes that we made is what we, I said last night is that we should have allowed space for the beloved community to be together because that is also a part of it. This is what we're doing in this retreat, the connection. The connection needed to happen to allow that space and then you know, give it time and then bring it in. But we started from the very beginning. So I know now activists never do that. <laughs> You need to be in community. You need to meet each other. You need to be in Sangha. So what is this that we're trying to bring? What is this mindfulness? And there's some new people in the room to mindfulness that we found out last night. And it's, this, it's a practice. It's a practice of sustained awareness of one's own experience in the present moment and without judgment. So again, it's the practice of sustained awareness of one's own experience in the present moment without judgment. That is what the basis of what we are sharing. Sustained awareness of one's own experience, paying attention, sustained attention to one's own experience. Like, really being aware, allowing yourself to notice, to turn inward and notice what is my own experience, what is happening to my body, to my emotions, my thoughts, this sustained awareness in the present moment, that present momentness is not, can we be in this moment? Not thinking about the past, not planning on the future, but right here. What's happening right here, right now? Without 
judgment. Now that, to me, is the hardest part. Because this mind is just filled with judgment, with, with making all kinds of, 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 of judging and opinions and what the quality of my experience, judging the quality of my experience, or judging the quality of your experience, right? And so this requires this bare awareness, this, this, this bare witnessing of ourselves, of our experience in the moment, without any judgment. And what happens is that there becomes this, the mind begins to calm, the nervous system begins to calm. Because in this moment, this is all that there is. Everything is okay in this moment. We spend so much time not being aware not being in this moment and judging our experiences. And it's a powerful practice. Because when you become more aware, you start seeing patterns, your own patterns, your thinking patterns, your emotional patterns, your bodily patterns. You start noticing patterns. And you start noticing habitual patterns and maybe some that need to change and shift. So now suddenly, Instead of having this habitual patterns, you have choice. You go, oh, I see how I do that. And I can have a choice and make a different choice. But again, it's a practice. You come back to it. 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 And you eventually start to create a bigger groove. And the Buddha left us with such, so much wisdom and there's these four paths of establishing mindfulness that we've been taught, these four main pathways. And these pathways are mindfulness of the body, this, this body here, this gross body that we live in, the awareness. If we can bring mindfulness to this body, being fully present, fully aware, everything that's going on with this body, being with the body, there's establishing mindfulness with our feelings. Like, what am I feeling? What, what, am, what, am, what, what emotions am I going through? Where am I right now? Am I sad? Am I doubtful? Am I, what are the, what, what is it that I'm feeling? We just go through the day without noticing and just being driven. There's mindfulness of thoughts, of the mind, of our thoughts. What is it that I'm thinking? How can I be more mindful? And there's this category of experiences, just another mindfulness of just cat different categories of experience, of awareness of a number of experiences that we get more granular with, that are all laid out, are all laid out by the Buddha. So when we experience this mindfulness, when we, when we establish mindfulness, it brings wisdom. There's this deeper wisdom and we can act from that transforms our lives and actually brings about a certain kind of liberation. It's so amazing, the impact that it can have. And particularly when we think of activists, 
in this particular context because, you know, we, as I explained, the burnout. How does it relate to the burnout? So I'm going to talk a little bit about, of the four pathways of mindfulness, I'm going to talk about thoughts. Um, mindfulness of, of, of our thoughts, and because we as activists are such thinking people, right? Thinking about all the things, the world, the problems, all of the, all of the things that keep our mind just captive, really. So our minds are really very powerful, very, very powerful. It is the powerful energy on the planet. And because, and our lives are shaped by our thoughts, how we think. Our lives are shaped by it. And our, shop, and the, our world, our thoughts actually shape the world that we live in. The way we experience the world is shaped by how we think about it. It's shaped how we think about it. The glass is half empty, it's half full. How do you think about that? You shape the way you live, right? And your thoughts become the, the world that, and the way that you see the world. And the very way that you think affects and changes, and it changes the world that you see. Your thoughts actually do change the world, right? And through our thoughts, we give the world meaning. And from that, we create our own worldview. So there's a social worldview. There's like a, an American worldview, how we see the world. Different countries have different worldviews. And then there's our personal worldviews. And we shape those worldviews. And we don't even know that we have a worldview. But through the mindfulness, it's like t turning the telescope backwards, or the mirror, and you can see. What is the worldview? What is it that I think? How is it that I live my life? Through the thoughts that I have that drive me. And we mostly are unaware of it. And now we know that the mind, it's natural to think. I mean, that is what the mind does. Like, you know, every part of the body has a function. The kidneys, you know, filter the, the blood and the urine and all of that, and the heart pumps and the blood. And the mind thinks. So it's very natural. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with it. But the problem is when when we are not mindful of our thoughts and when we do harm with our thoughts to ourselves and to others. And to the causes that we care so much about. Our thoughts can actually create problems with the, the, the things that we care the most about. So when we are not skillful, when we are not skillful with our thinking, with our thoughts and how, and that is what this mindfulness practice is, we become more skillful just by noticing. Just by noticing. Because as you become, bring your awareness, you start seeing the patterns, as I said, right? And just this river of thoughts that, that go through us, that the many, many thoughts and that, that we have throughout the day. And you start to believe everything that you think. And I don't believe everything you think. Please, don't, don't believe everything you think. Um, it's because it, thoughts are real, but they're not necessarily true. Right? They're real, they exist, but they are not necessarily true. So it's really important that we 
discern, that we get discernment, that we, we develop that. And this river of thoughts that, that run through us and how it impacts, again, we talked about our physical bodies, our, our, our psychological bodies, our emotional bodies. And the truth is that most of our thoughts are really reruns. Like 90% of our thoughts are recycled, <laughs> right? We've thought it many times before. We think about problems often, like, you know, I, um, gosh, I remember I have to reinsure my, my vehicle. I really do have <laughs> to reinsure my vehicle, right? That's a thought, like problem-solving thoughts or thoughts about preference of, you know, I, I don't really eat oatmeal, so I didn't really want to breakfast. I don't really like oatmeal. Oh, but I love oatmeal, right? Just our preferences, and we think a lot about our preferences, what we like, what we don't like. Um, thoughts about self-judgment. Um, did I walk into this room quiet enough? Did I put my shoes in the right place? Those kinds of thoughts. Oh, I came in late. There's all these self-judgment thoughts. And then there's always thoughts about judging other people. Oh, I can't believe the socks she's wearing. <laughs> mm. All those kinds of just judging other people. The mind is just crazy this way. It's crazy this way. And so what we're talking about is being more thoughtful rather than thoughtless, right? The Buddha said, nothing can harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. Nothing can harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. The thoughts, he said also, drive your emotions. What you think, you become. Yeah. A huge part of how we suffer has to do with how we think, right? I, um, I told Kara Jewel once about a story about thoughts and how I was suffering. Um, I was once in the country of Senegal, and I was um, working with girls who, need, who were being educated um, and growing that a lot more. So I'm in Senegal and I'm shooting a film. I used to be a filmmaker about girls who, who are being educated and promoting that education. And I got very ill. I got malaria. And on top of that, I had dysentery. And I was sick. I mean, like never before. I mean, I couldn't hold on to anything. <laughs> it was horrible. And the show had to go on. We had to keep shooting. We had a date where we had to shoot at a school. Um, you know, people came from far and wide to walk to the school. They were waiting for us. And so I sent the crew on. And I said, drop me off someplace where at least I have a flushing toilet, right? And we were far out into the, into the, near the Mali border. And so I was dropped off at his place. It was in the morning. And it was a little room. And it had a flushing toilet which is what I really needed. And they took off. My, my crew took off and left me. And they said, we'll be back. And so there I was, sicker than I've ever been in my life, alone, in the middle of I have no idea where. The mind. The mind started freaking out. It was like, OK, I'm going to die. I'm here by myself. I don't know where I am. 
raging temperature, everything was, I started to just go, why did I let them go? Why did I do this? I don't know when they're coming back. I don't know if I'm going to survive this. I was so, so sick. So the mind was just taking me down this pathway of my parents don't know where I am, my sister, nobody knows where I am. I don't even know where I am. And what ended up happening is like at one point, I, I that started to take off and then I go, wait a minute. Condemnation, you have a practice. You have a practice. And I immediately grabbed onto my practice. And I started just paying attention to my breath, slowing down the mind, paying attention to my breath. I breathe in, I'm calm. I breathe out, I'm home. I breathe in, I'm calm. I breathe out, I'm at home. And I did that for hours. And everything changed and softened. The freak out stopped. And I did that for hours. It went from daylight to dark. I breathe in, I'm calm, I breathe out, I'm home. This is home now. And that practice got me through until somebody opened that door finally at night. And they came to get me and took me straight to a hospital. But that's the power of the practice of, and the power of the mind, right? The only difference was my mind. It went from freak out to practice. This is what is possible with our minds. So this mindfulness of thought is a pathway to our liberation. And so that same study that I mentioned earlier about burnout, it pointed to the fact that mindfulness practice can mitigate the experience of burnout. Mindfulness, meditation, talk about Tai Chi, yoga, all of it can mitigate the experience of burnout. And that, not only that, but you actually become more effective activists. So kind of counterintuitively, the pathway to become effective, an effective activist outwardly is an internal road. It's an internal pathway, right? And, you know, when we look at social change, it's a very complex thing. Social change is very complex. The world is complex. The minds of people are complex. Our own minds are complex. If it weren't complex, things would be different. Things would be okay. There would be less injustice if it weren't so complex, if we could figure it out. And remember, we are the same people who do poetry and mass murder at the same time, right? All of that complexity. And sometimes as activists, we think, well, it's really simple if, they, if everyone just thought like I do. Right? I have the answer. This is how it should be. And if everybody did that, we'd be fine. But we know that that's not the way it is. Everybody thinks they're right. Everyone thinks they're right. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about the problems, convinced that the other person or the other group 
is wrong, knowing that we're righteous, we're right. So this conviction of being right, plus the determination to change the world, it can turn into the exact opposite of what we're trying to do. It actually can lead to fundamentalism. We think of the other group as being fundamentalist, but it can actually lead to us, this fundamentalist thinking, when we think about it, when we look at it, all right? So we make everyone else who doesn't think like us, doesn't look like us, wrong. And so in order to meet these complexities of the world, we have to do this inner work. We have to look at our thoughts. We have to look at who we are. We have to look at ourselves. We have to watch our thoughts and how they wind us all up. You have to stop and notice and see how are you approaching this? Who are you in the middle of the work that you're doing? And we have to be open to change for ourselves. We always think again that someone or something out there is the one that needs to change. But here's the deal. The world is really dynamic. It's changing all the time, right? We know that nothing is permanent. Everything is shifting. And so, so do our views. Our views need to shift with the reality of what's happening. We can't hold on to fixed views. And that's what we tend to do is hold on to this righteous fixed view when everything is changing. Rigidity is the enemy of transformation. Rigidity is the enemy of transformation. I love the Metta Sutta is one of the beautiful pieces of sutta that we have from our lineage of Theravada lineage and um, the Metta Sutta. Um, and there's this, this several phrases and it, it ends with, by not holding on to fixed views, the pure hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. By not holding on to fixed views, the pure hearted one having clarity of vision, by not holding on to fixed views. And so that part of the sutta just is, of all the phrases, it's my favorite because I'm always working on myself and my fixed views. And being free from all sense desires is not born again into this world. So the activist's emphasis is on this outer world, this insistence that someone or something else must change to the detriment of my own inner awareness often. This impassioned desire to change the outer world without changing oneself. It kind of reminds me of my mom who used to say, do what I say, not what I do, right? <laughs> the complexities of life it requires us to not just sit on a viewpoint that goes unexamined. So this internal mindfulness of thoughts, of body, and emotions, it leads to our external mindfulness of experience and phenomena, the phenomenal world. We impact it. 
and the, this awareness, the world is deserving of us having this internal self-reflection. This piece that um, I just got from Kyra Jewell that is beautiful called A Delicate Activism. Such a beautiful piece. I think we're going to send it out to people. And I'm just going to quote from it. It's talking about a delicate activism. An activism that emphasizes action to the diminution of reflection, that rewards outer effect and ignores inner awareness, that focuses on the other but occludes the self, that extols results almost as commodities without sufficient regard for the process of getting there, cannot, it cannot succeed in following the actual complexities of social change. Ironically, it renders us onlookers rather than participants and actually retards change. A delicate activism is truly radical and that it is aware of itself and understands that its way of seeing is the change it wants to see. It heralds a a seismic shift towards a more social and ecological form of activism, towards a future that supports life. The Gestalt psychology says that this paradoxical theory of change is the more you try to change a behavior, the more it stays the same. So burnout. That, that same study showed that, that burnout, the more activists became mindful, the more they engaged in mindful activities, the more they engaged in mindful practice, their burnout diminished. The thoughts of despair decreased. Compassion, fatigue, and cynicism turned toward equanimity the more they practice. So what does this mean? It means that we start to hold the world differently. We still have, like Vandana Shiva, we still have the, the passion, the, the desire, the, all the thrust, and we hold it differently. Kyra Jewell is going to talk tomorrow about compassion and equanimity and its role that it plays in in the world that we are bringing forward, that we want to see, and in ourselves. So spiritual practice is justice work, and justice work is spiritual practice. There's a link, the links between them. And if you look at it, they overlap in that both spiritual practice and justice work takes into account this deep awareness of social relations, right? Striving for healthy social relations, both. And both of them are a rejection of this dualistic way of thinking and really recognizing interconnection, that we're interconnected to what's happening in the Middle East, what's happening in Sudan, what's happening We are interconnected to all of that. That is social justice work, and that is also the work of spiritual practice. 
And they both have this focus on consciousness raising, on raising the consciousness individually and collectively. So they're very intertwined and very linked. So people who spend their lives doing this justice work are actually predisposed towards mindfulness, and they don't even know it, <laughs> right? Some of you, you do, obviously, you're here. But, not, but even those who reject it, who say, I don't have time for it, they're so close to it. It's the same, it's the same. And the movement for justice will be strengthened by more mindfulness practitioners. Imagine, imagine the world filled with mindfulness practitioners who are doing this work, how it would shift. Because you see, we live in the world that we seek to change. So any change must be within us too. It has to be within us. We are that world. We are not separate from that world. We are the world. Self-scrutiny must be central to our activity to change the world. How we think has the potential to be more transformative than any action we can do. That is counterintuitive to the way we live as activists in the world. That how we think is more transformative than any action that we can do. Skillful thoughts. Skillful thoughts create a skillful world. And then we act from that place. So social change is an inside job, y'all. It's an inside job first and foremost. Because as we become more mindful of our thinking, we create a more mindful world. How we are is how the world becomes. Self-reflection and self-understanding is at the core of true, effective activism. So it's not about the other. It's about us. It's about us. And that's what this work, this practice, shines a light on and creates the tools to become mindful, become aware, to create within us that person that's not burned out, that has been able to work on the physical manifestations of burnout, the psychological, the emotional ones. Someone who is being able to find liberation and peace within. That is how we have a peaceful world. So you're in the right place. This is exactly where we need to be. This is exactly where we need to be. 
And the last thing I want to bring up is the beloved community and how important that is for us. We can't do this work alone. Find your tribe. And this may very well be your tribe, part of it, a new tribe. But we must find our tribes and bring those who maybe we work with, bring them into the practice and introduce them to the practice. This is the world that we want to create. And it starts with self. It's not about them. It's about us. So thank you for your kind attention. So we're going to move into any. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.